This past week, for those of you who don't know much about us, Linda and I have three children. Our oldest one will be a junior in college. Our middle son graduated from junior high school on Friday. Our youngest, our baby, graduated from elementary school on Friday, so we spent Friday at graduation ceremonies. And um, it was, you know, a fascinating experience, as those things can be. And, uh, you know, it's tough being a parent, you know, and it's tough being a father. And uh, one guy was telling a story that he had just been going over and over, just this battle that's taken place all year long with his junior high school-aged boy about his poor grades. Over and over they were going on and on, and this heated exchange went on and on, and it culminated at, at the graduation. And he said that, you know what, he said, we were going back and forth, and my son was frustrated, and I was frustrated, I was getting angry, he was getting upset. And he said, that, he asked me the question that every parent dreads. He said, okay, Dad, really, let, let's just get right to it. W- what's the problem? Is it the environment or is it hereditary? You know, and, and I know that some of you have gone through where the kid comes out and says, I found your report cards. And my answer to that was always, well, then, since you found it, it's only right that I give you what I got for that report card. <laughs> right? That's the only way to do it. Anyway, it seems like as parents, it's tough to win. But uh, win we must, you know, because the battle has high stakes. And the battle basically is for the souls of our children, and ultimately it's for the soul of our nation. We are in a battle, we are in a war, and we must never grow weary in fighting that battle. And uh, on this Father's Day, I figured it was appropriate, since we've been discussing the moral decline of our country, as well as uh, what's been happening to family, I think it's appropriate that we take a couple of moments and we take some time to, under- <clears throat> to understand the importance of male leadership in our culture. And if the family unit is to survive and ultimately the nation, it's important that we understand as men what our role is in this whole ex- experience. In 1980, 14 years ago, Dr. James Dobson put it this way. He says, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in history. It is my opinion that our, that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe everything within me that husbands hold the keys to the preservation of the family. That was in 1980. Things have gotten worse since then. And we need to be aware of that. The research has been done, the evidence has been gathered, and the conclusions are all remarkably the same. Of every report that I've read and every study and every research survey that's come out, basically the bottom line is this. The LA Times entitled an article that they had not too long ago, and I think it captures the essence of everything that, that we're going to talk about. But the, idol, the article was entitled, Life Without Father. As more and more America, American men disconnect from family life, society suffers the consequences. In the article, it goes on to say that all across America tonight, one-third of the nation's children will go to bed without the father, without their fathers in the next room. And of that total, 40% of those kids haven't seen their dad in a year. You know, if you ask a typical government bureaucrat what the problems are that our nation faces, you know, they'll usually, you hear a lot of abstract things like uh, economic trends and trade deficits and things like that. But there was a gentleman under the Bush administration, his name was Dr. Lewis Sullivan, and he was the Secretary of Health and Human, uh, Health and, uh, Human Services. And uh, he had some conclusions based on what he saw, and the insights are interesting. 
He says, since 1960s, America has seen a staggering increase of broken families. Liberal social scientists don't like to use phrases like broken families, so they glibly describe them in neutral terms like new family forms and single parent homes. He says, but you know what? In the eyes of a child, what's nearly always happening is the loss of a father. He says, and the statistics show that the results are devastating. While the national poverty rate is 6%, the poverty rate for female-headed households is 30%. Among black female-headed households, it jumps to 50%. He says, the blunt fact is that poverty is not going to be eradicated from our black communities so long as nearly 70% of black children are born out of wedlock. And uh, Dr. Sullivan is an African-American, and so obviously it's something that is uh, close to his heart. And he says, and with no-fault divorce, poverty is rapidly making inroads into the middle class as well. Half of all new welfare recipients are recently divorced women and their children. But he says, missing a father means more, much more than a missing paycheck. A father's love, discipline, are crucial to character formation. And for children growing up without that love, the, the statistics are grim. Fatherless children display more antisocial behavior. They do worse in school and are twice as likely to drop out than children from intact families. They are more likely to use drugs and become sexually active at an early age. More than half the teenagers who have attempted suicide live in single-parent homes. Most children run away from home or leaving fatherless homes. And approximately 70% of juveniles who end up in long-term correctional facilities grew up without a father in the home. He goes on and says even health rates are affected. But the bottom line of all of it, he says, you know what? Most of our national dialogue on family issues, most of our parenting classes, most of our social supports for parents focus on mothers. He said, but in reality, it's not women who are abandoning nor neglecting their children. It is men. So as the time has come to shift our attention to the issue of male responsibility and the indispensable role that fathers play in family life. And his, and his clincher of everything that he states is this. He says, there's a reason God created the family the way that he did. Children need fathers as well as mothers in order, in order to thrive. And even more important, in order to learn to trust God as their heavenly father. Interesting insights from a man who dealt with the problem for a number of years. Well, what's the point? Well, I hope you didn't miss it. I think the point is simple. As a father, and as fathers, we play a critical role as to what the future holds in store for our children. Not only for their lives, but also for our nation in its entirety. And it's time that we as men stepped up and assumed the responsibility that God has given us. But you see, out of fairness, many of us don't know how to do it. You know, we read about fathers who deserted their kids or fathers who are gone or missing in action or whatever, they're not there anymore. And obviously, that's not what you're dealing with because, for the most part, those of you who are here or listening are there. You're there. You live with your wife. You live with your kids. You're there on a regular basis. But the problem is you don't know what to do because we haven't been trained as men on how to assume that leadership position. We don't know what to do. We want to do the right thing. Anybody that has a heart for God wants to do the right thing, but we just don't know how to do it. So we're woefully inadequate at trying to do what we believe God wants us to do, and it becomes even more frustrating. And uh, we need to understand that. 
We need to recognize that we need to be taught. We need to learn. We need to grow. And in areas where we need to change, we need to be willing to change. And we need to move on in a direction that's more pleasing to God. So this morning, what I want to focus on as we take a look at this on Father's Day is really a how-to. You know, how to be a good father. How to do it. And that's what we're going to focus on. First of all, we need to recognize one thing. Good is a highly subjective term. It's a highly subjective term, and let me illustrate it. <clears throat> okay, for the last eight years, I, I've been involved in, in coaching or managing baseball teams or whatever. And uh, I, now I'm, I'm dealing with the senior, the, se- the senior level, which is 14 and 15-year-olds. Fascinating experience. <laughs> I, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that T-ball, I could pass on. And there's a couple of good years in between there that we had a lot of fun. And this has been uh, maybe just a tad short of a nightmare experience. (laughs) And the only reason I say that is because now you're dealing with with kids that are 14 and 15, and they know everything. And you just ask them, and they'll tell you. But anyway, so they're standing around the other day, and they're warming up before a game, and I hear one of the guys saying to the other guy, hey, you know what? And they were talking about uh, another sport and said, hey, you know, that guy is a good coach. He's a good coach. Now, I'm dying to know what, what a good coach is. I don't have a clue. You know, I've been doing this. I'm thinking, well, I hope I fit the category, right? So I go over, and I want to learn, right? So I show I'm open to conversation, to dialogue here. <laughs> what, what, what is a good coach? And he looks at me and he goes, you know what? He lets us cuss. He lets us swear. He lets us do whatever we want to do. So that's a good coach. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, I'm not a good coach. And I don't want to be a good coach. But see, good is so highly subjective, right? What's a good teacher? You ask your kid, what's a good teacher? One that doesn't give homework. One that doesn't require anything of you. One that doesn't give out tests, right? That's a great teacher. You know, what's a good boss? Oh, I got the greatest boss. I don't even have to go to work and he sends me a check. You know? <laughs> I mean, see, that, that's what good is. So the problem is, we, we're going to need to understand something. And, and this is so helpful, and, and appreciate this. Fathers, your children do not determine whether you are a good father. God determines whether you're a good father. So for our purposes, we will define what a good father is from God's perspective. And it takes all the pressure off of trying to please a bunch of people who don't have a clue what good is anyway, because we know that the Bible says that God is good. And in Him there's no darkness at all, and God determines what is good. So based on that, we're going to find out what it takes to be a good father from God's vantage point. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Starting with verse 4, God lays out basically what we're going to see are four essential elements in being a good father. Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. We read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In this particular section of Scripture, we'll find four essential elements in being a good father by God's definition. And it's important to realize, too, that um, we need to understand the importance of history. At our daughter's graduation ceremony the other day, her teacher made a remark that was very wise in its saying, and, and he said this. He said, if you do not learn from history, you will be doomed to repeat it. If you do not learn from history, you will be doomed to repeat it. What he's saying is true. And see, God says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, we're told that everything that God has put in written form in, the, in, the, in his word is given to us so that we would be instructed as an example to us of wrong behavior, of right behavior, of corrective measures, and how we are to live. And so as we look at this, God gives instructions to the men of Israel and he tells them, listen, if you are going to be good husbands and going to be good fathers, here are four essential elements or ingredients to becoming a good father in God's eyes. And that's all that really matters. And so as we look at this, we need, to, we need to understand what does God want us to learn from these verses that we have before us as to how to become a good father. And the first one is this. I believe that God wants us to understand if you are to be a good father, you must have a strong reliance upon God. You must have a strong reliance upon God. That's the only thing that matters. And in fact, if you look at that in verse 4, it says, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This became what was called the Shema or the motto of Israel. This was their battle cry, so to speak. The nation of Israel, the men of Israel, recognized that this was the battle cry. He says, hear. See, in our culture, what we would say is, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, now listen to me. Now listen to me. Or when you're dealing with a, a group of guys, or you're, you know, you're a coach or whatever, and, and there, there's chaos, you say, hey, listen up. Pay attention. This is important. I had a professor in college. His favorite line was, uh, he said, now, hear what I'm about to say. And what did he mean by that? I'll guarantee you what he meant, and in, it's in trial and error. You learn these things. This is going to be on the test. <laughs> right? And, and it's kind of like, I didn't hear you say that. And so he, he developed this, this pattern of, hear what I'm about to say. And you know what? You look around, man, everybody's like, And, and, then you th and then I thought, yeah, if he said that about everything, we probably would have learned a lot more. But then we probably wouldn't have believed them, right? So it was like, here are important things. And, so, and this is the same type of emphasis that's being used. Hear what I'm about to say. This is going to be on the test. And what God is saying is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The unity of God was based on what God had already accomplished and demonstrated through his power to the people of Israel. What God continually reminded them of was, hey, you know what? There's nobody else like me. There's nobody else like me. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 34 and 35, we read this. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders? by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? 
Have you ever seen anything like what I did? Has anybody come close to duplicating what I did? And see, that's why we need to understand history. We need to understand what he's talking about. We need to understand what God did. Have you ever seen a million people marching around in the desert? Being protected by a cloud during the day from the heat of the sun? Being directed by fire at night so they knew the direction? Have you ever seen anybody feed millions of people in the desert by rain and bread out of heaven? Have you ever seen anybody get that many frogs in one place at one time in your life? Have you ever seen anybody turn water into blood? Have you ever seen, have you ever seen anybody do anything like what I did? He said, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and beside him there is no other. There's nobody like God. And as fathers, what he's saying is, you want to be a good father, you need to have a strong reliance upon God and his character. Knowing that God isn't limited to anything. The unity of God was based on what he did. Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7, the first commandment says the same thing. There's no other gods before me. There's nobody like me. What's, what's kind of discouraging at times is that God says, remember who I am. i got a whole bunch to offer. But as dads, we get so discouraged sometimes. How many of you, have, as a father, have ever got discouraged? How many of you ever feel like sometimes as a father you just can't go on? How do you please your wife? How do you please your kids? How do you balance your job and the finances and all the stuff that goes with it? And everybody's got a need and everybody's coming to you and that's your responsibility is to provide for them. And you think, man, there's no way I can keep doing this. Why do you think guys jump in their car and they get their silver and gold medallion they put it around their neck and they take off, they open their shirt and they jump in their Corvette and they take off and drive down the street? with some young, pretty thing next to him in the car that they just met. They don't want to deal with the responsibility. I deserve my rights, man. I deserve to be happy. Why can't I be happy? God wants me to be happy. Uh, no, God wants you to be obedient. You see, the problem that we have as men is we're all looking for a way to get out of this mess. And the reason that we're doing that is we're, we're really struggling with things. I know guys who are struggling with their finances now, and the reason for it is that we've had a bad economy the last several years. And they're used to making X. Now they're making half X. And the problem is their family doesn't understand. They can't do the same things they used to do. And it's a real struggle, and it's a real dilemma, and it's real frustrating. And, 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 and there's anguish involved in all that. And they look at them and they say sometimes like, Hey, are you with me or are you against me? Are we all on the same team here or what? And they get frustrated by all of it. And they want to just take off and leave. And you know what happens when we start thinking like that? We've taken our eyes off the Lord. When I get discouraged and frustrated, I guarantee I'm looking at the circumstances and I'm not looking at God. Why? Because when I look at God and I start reading His Word and I realize who He is, you know what I find out in the Bible? He isn't experiencing a power shortage. He's not running out of stuff. He's not running out of... The ability to provide for us. I read through the Bible and it blows me away what God can do. I've already mentioned he felt millions of people in the desert. When you look at what God can do, he created the universe and he spoke it into existence. Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ sustains the universe by his mere presence. 
by just being there. He holds everything together. He holds the universe together. And I think he can't take care of me and my family. What in the world's wrong with me? I go through the Bible and I see what Jesus did. Someone was lame and they couldn't walk. He said, get up and walk. They were blind, they couldn't see. He said, now you're going to see. They were dead and he yelled, Lazarus, come on out now. You're the next contestant or whatever, you know. It's like, hey, he's not limited what he could do. Thank you. But it's true. He stood up in a boat and he stopped the storm. Let me tell you something, Dad. Do you think that your God doesn't care about what you're going through? Do you think your God can't take care of your family and your needs? When Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, doesn't God care about them? Doesn't he care more about you? See, God's not limited. But you know what? Unfortunately, fathers, sometimes we look to help somewhere other than on our knees. We look to each other to try to bail us out of whatever the, the, the need that we perceive is. We look to other people to help us escape from our responsibilities. But you know what the bottom line is? We need to drop on our knees. We need to get right before God. We need to have a strong reliance upon God because we know that we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. When I think I can't love my wife anymore, I look at that and say, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. When I get frustrated with my kids or with, with work or with finances or with anything, man, I just look and say, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. It's okay. And you're not alone in how you feel, but the bottom line is we all need help. We don't need to sit around and have a pity party for one another about how tough life is. Life's tough, but God's greater. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways you acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your paths. See, when we feel sorry for ourselves, we're trusting in ourselves, and we're not trusting in God. You want to be a good father? Then you need to demonstrate a strong reliance upon God. You need to teach your children that there's no better place to turn for counsel and advice. There's no better one to turn to when things aren't going right in your life than to drop on your knees and ask God to intervene in your situation. You want to be a good father according to God? Then you have a strong reliance upon God because you realize there is nowhere else to turn. And if we don't start to realize in our society with all the stuff that's going on this past week about role models and heroes and who we look up to, then God hasn't taught us a lesson yet, but he wants us to understand. Men and women will always let us down, but God never will. We have one hero, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we can't ever lose focus of that. When we do, we're discouraged, we're disappointed, we're disheartened, we're, our hearts are broken. And rightfully so, because we're all part of this together and we all hurt for one another. But in reality, we need to have a strong reliance upon God. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. A great example, John chapter 6. John 6 and verse 59, we see Jesus again reminds us of this spiritual truth. John 6, verse 59. It's an interesting passage of scripture because in it, God is, Jesus is reminding the people of Israel of how God had, had taken care of the Israelites in the desert. He said, God had sent manna from heaven to feed you, and Jesus used that to teach a spiritual truth about himself. He said, I am the bread that comes out of heaven. 
and that you must eat me, so to speak, or be sustained by me in order to be right before God. He just gets finished with this discourse, and people are really confused, and they're just upset about what he just did. So in chapter uh, 6, verse 59, he, he says this, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, Man, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? This is like, ugh. I mean, he's talking about, you know, eating his flesh and doing this and that. It's like, ugh, I, this, this is hard to understand. It says, what then if you should behold the Son of Man? Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled, this, said, hey, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending before he was before, ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Listen what Simon Peter answered. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see what he says? <laughs> Lord, where are we going to go? You're it. You're the one. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus later went on and said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. See, Peter was made aware of that by God. Because if you remember, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you that I am the Christ, but my Father who is in heaven. And what he was saying was quite simple. Lord, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. There's no one else that can do what you do. You offer eternal life. You're the only way to get to the Father. We have to put our faith and trust in you. And you know what, folks? Man, let me tell you something. There's no way that you'll ever become a good father. It's impossible to do so without first having put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because there's nothing good outside of that. Nothing. You have to rely upon Him. You have to humble yourself before God. And the Bible says that if you humble yourself, He will exalt you at the proper time. That God is opposed to the proud. And men, I'm going to ask you a question. When your children look at your life, do they see a man who is proud and self-sufficient? Or do they see a man of humility that has knelt down before the throne, before the cross of Christ, and asked Christ into their life to become the Lord of their life? Do they see a man who is humble and willing to turn to God anytime there's a problem in his life and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I need your help, and I need your grace, and I need your wisdom, I need your guidance, and I need you. Is that the legacy that you leave in the lives of your kids? Is that what other people see in your life? Because a good father... A godly man is a man who has a strong reliance upon God because he knows there is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to turn, which leads us to number two. A good father, according to God's definition, is one that also has a loving relationship to God. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That to become a good father, we have to just downright fall in love with the Lord. You know, you stop and think, you know what, why, why, why do dads leave their, their families? Why do dads desert their wife, their kids? Why do they lose their temper? Why do they get angry? 
You know, why do they scream? Why do they go out and get drunk? Why do guys have affairs? Why do guys lose control? Why do these things happen? And I believe it happened for, just for one reason, is that they don't have a loving relationship to God. They just don't have a loving relationship with God. It's missing. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul. We need to be men who have embraced by the love of God. We need to be men who are broken by the love of God. Because once that takes place, we then can offer the same thing to the people around us. When I experience the love of God in my life, I cannot help but love my wife. I cannot help but love my kids. I cannot help but love people around me who, for a lot of reasons, you don't even want to like, yet alone love. But when I've seen the grace and the forgiveness, when I have experienced the forgiveness of God, then I have no choice but to forgive those around me. When my wife gets me upset, when my kids get me upset, I'm reminded constantly to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven me. See, that's really what it's all about. We need a loving relationship with God. In order to be a good father, we need to have an intense, vibrant, strong love for the Lord himself. We need to be passionate. Now, let me ask you something. Very personal. What are you passionate about? Your children watch your life, and they see what gets you excited. What are you passionate about? Sports? Football? Basketball? Your job? Your career? Your education? Reading? Hunting? Fishing? Golf? What are you passionate about? That's what they see. Now, is there anything wrong with any of those things? I hope not. Because I like most of them, and I'm probably pretty passionate about them. But you know what? All those things better take a back seat to my passion and love for the Lord. Because if the Lord says, I want you to stop doing that, because it's costing you your family, it's costing you your relationship with your wife and your kids, you need to stop going golfing every week. You need to stop going fishing with the boys. You need to stop doing this or doing that that excludes your family. See, if God has called me and says, you've got to stop doing that, then I have to have a passionate love for him that says, okay, whatever you say, I'll stop doing any of those things. If that's what's a stumbling block in my relationship with you and my relationship with others, I've got to be willing to give it all up. That's the passion that we have to have. That's the love that we have to have. That's the love that when we have that for the Lord, we cannot help but do what He asks us to do when He calls us to do it. And you know what? The Apostle Paul said it best in Philippians 3. Read it sometimes. He said, you know what? I consider all of these things in my life that I thought were important. They're garbage now. They're rubbish now. None of those things are important to me anymore. You know what's important to me? The surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord and the power of His resurrection. That's the only thing that's important to me anymore. And if God tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. If he tells me to stop, I'm going to stop. Why? Because I am in love with him. Because I know what he saved me from. I know what he's taken me from. I know what price he's paid on the cross. And I can't help loving Jesus because of it. See, if you love him, you will obey his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. John chapter 15. He also said, you know what? If you love him, if you stop and think about it, you'll serve him. 
You'll be willing to go wherever he tells you to go and to do whatever he tells you to do. If you want to be a good father, you have to be a man who is passionately in love with Jesus. And it also means that you'll be bold in testifying before others of what Jesus Christ means to you. Man, I'll tell you what. You want to be a good father? You want to leave a legacy in the lives of your kids and others that will last far beyond your lifetime? Then you just be sold out 100% passionately in love with Jesus Christ. What a wonderful indictment for your kids to say, you know what? There's one thing I know about my dad. He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. Do you? Number three. And it goes without saying, but it also requires a personal response to God's word. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. It has to be here in your heart, not in your head. It has to be in your heart. It has to be a part of who you are. That's what passion's all about. You know, I get together with guys, that, you know, they're into football and they're into sports or whatever. Man, it's like, you don't have to beg them to talk about it. They can't stop talking about it. It's kind of like when gals get together and they talk about a sale. You know, I, what? Or, or, you know, or where the good bargains are or whatever. Now, now see, all oh, now, you know, it's okay if I say guys are excited about sports, but you're not excited about shopping? Oh, please, you know what? Just give me a break. Did you see this sale? I mean, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. It's a passion, but that's okay. But you see, we need to have it on our heart. The emphasis here is on the heart. Not just in our heads, but in our heart. And it, and it carries out into our life. I like what the one man wrote, Stuart Briscoe, talking about leadership. He says this, One of my young colleagues was officiating at the funeral of a war veteran. He said the dead man's military friends wished to have a part in the service at the funeral home, so they requested the pastor lead them down to the casket, stand with them for a solemn moment of remembrance, and then lead them out the side door. This he proceeded to do. But unfortunately, the effect was somewhat marred when he picked the wrong door. The result was that they marched with military precision into a broom closet and in full view of all the mourners and had to beat a hasty retreat covered with confusion. He says the story illustrates a cardinal rule or two. First, if you're going to lead, make sure you know who you're following. Second, if you're going to follow, make sure that you're following someone who knows what he's doing. And that's really what leadership is. That's what effective male leadership is all about. We know where we're going. Don't hesitate to follow us because we're relying upon God, because we're in love with Jesus, and we're responding to his word in our heart. Follow me, and I'll show you the right direction. I love that story. But you know what? A lot of us sometimes lose the big picture. Probably the best story of that was a relationship that Earl Weaver, who was manager of the Baltimore Orioles at the time, and Reggie Jackson was one of his players. True story. Reggie Jackson and Earl Weaver went at it all the time. Both were strong-willed people. Earl Weaver felt because he was the manager that he could actually tell a player what to do. Um, <clears throat> and so he told Reggie Jackson, you do not steal unless I give you the steal sign. So Reggie Jackson wanted to prove that he could steal anytime he wanted, and no one had to tell him when to steal, when not to steal. So Reggie Jackson got on first base, took a big lead, got a great jump, went, stole second base, didn't even get a throw from the catcher. He was standing out at second base. He was brushing himself off. He was looking at third base dugout, looking at Earl Weaver, and he was kind of giving him one of those looks. Came into the dugout after the end of the inning. Earl Weaver looked at him and said, I told you not to steal until I gave you a steal sign. Reggie said, yeah, but I knew I could beat the throw. He goes, you know what? That's not the problem. Let me explain to you what the problem is. I didn't have you steal because Lee May was up next. Lee May's our best power hitter behind you. The fact that you stole second base, then opened up first base, Lee May was then given an intentional walk. 
The guy who was up after him couldn't hit this pitcher for his life, so I had to bring in a substitute batter. I had to bring in a pinch hitter to hit for him because he couldn't hit him, and I had to deplete my bench because you did something that you thought was the best thing for you to do because all you looked at was a relationship that you had with the pitcher, and you knew you can run on him. Oh. Oh. What's the point? The point is, is that oftentimes we lose sight of the big picture because all we care about is us. And you need to understand something. God always has the big picture in mind. He sees the big vantage point. And we need to, as men, if we're going to be good fathers, never lose sight of what God sees. We need to have his vantage point with everything. And that's something that we all need to understand. A man that personally responds to the Word of God will find stability in his life, will find consistency in his life, will find strength when others are compromising, and will find a way of escape when others are given into temptation. We need to be men who have the Word of God in our hearts, like the psalmist says, so that we do not sin against God. We need to be in love with Jesus Christ, and we need to love with the Word of God, and we can't get enough of it because it gives us the big picture that we never can lose focus of. And the last thing is this. If you're to be a good father, it also requires a definite responsibility toward your family. We need to become men that see life as a teaching opportunity in every situation. Our kids are going to make mistakes. Don't ever lose sight of the opportunity to teach them truth because they in some way have hurt you to the point where you are blinded to the lessons spiritually that they need to learn. Did you hear what I said? We as parents oftentimes take it as a personal attack when our kids make a mistake. We need to be able to lay aside our personal agenda and be able to see things from the big picture, which is God's vantage point, that our responsibility as parents is to teach our children the truths of God. And oftentimes in our own lives as well as their life, they learn those truths by making foolish decisions. Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 9 says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them, speaking of the commandments of God. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Talk about them. Let them know what's going on. Use every situation as life as a teaching experience and an opportunity. Probably the best example of that was uh, an article that I read not too long ago that Josh McDowell shared. He said he came back from a trip and he got in his car and his secretary and his kids were in the car and he made sure his kids were in the car with the secretary because he didn't want to be alone with the woman, which is another insight into other things we talked about. But he said that his secretary and his kids came and picked him up at the airport. They were driving back from the airport in San Diego. They live up near Fallbrook and they were going up the 15 freeway and the two kids in the backseat were younger. Uh, I think they were like nine and seven at the time. And the older one looked at the other one as they were getting in an argument and said, F you. Oh. <gasps> Right? Josh goes, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? It was great. He said, you know what? I just heard you say, and he said the word. He said, I just want to ask you a question. Do you know what that means? Well, no, but I hear kids at school say it all the time. Oh, well, you know what? This would be great. we got 45 minutes left on on the road. Why don't I explain to you what that means? And then went for the next 45 minutes and gave God's viewpoint of sex and marriage and what the word meant and what the act was and what it was all about. And by the time they got home, he said, now do you understand what that word means? Yes. 
Well, do you think it was right to use it the way that you did? Absolutely not, and I'll never do it again. Whoa, what wisdom, what insight into taking something that the majority of us would want to smack them across the face <laughs> or wash their mouth out with soap. Right? Am I right? But see, that's the difference between keeping a vantage point of the big picture and saying, hmm, this is a great teaching opportunity. And I'm going to use it to do what's right before God. That's what a good father would do. I came across this article, and I want to share it with you. Irma Bobbeck, Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest, condensing everything. So this is a condensed version of a condensed version. She writes this about a father. She says, you know, when I was a little kid, a father was like the light in the refrigerator. Every house had one, but no one really knew what either of them did once the door was shut. <laughs> My dad left the house every morning, always seemed glad to see everyone again at night. He opened a jar of pickles when no one else at home could. He was the only one in the house who wasn't afraid to go into the basement by himself. <laughs> well, he cut himself shaving, but no one kissed it. No one got excited about it. It was understood that whenever it rained, he was the one who got the car and brought it around to the door. When everyone was sick, he went out and got the prescription filled. He kept busy enough. He set mousetraps. He cut back the roses so the thorns wouldn't snag you when you came to the front door. He oiled my roller skates and they went faster. When I got my bike, he ran alongside me for at least a thousand miles <clears throat> until I got the hang of it. He signed all my report cards. He took a lot of pictures, but you know what? He was never in any of them. He tightened up mother's sagging clothesline every week or so. I was afraid of everyone else's father, but I wasn't afraid of mine. Once I made him some tea. Well, it wasn't tea. It was sugar water, but he sat on a small chair and said it was delicious. He looked rather uncomfortable as he sat there. Once I went fishing with him. I threw rocks into the water, and he threatened to throw me in after them. <laughs> Problem was, I wasn't sure that he wouldn't, so I looked him in the eye for a whole year. I finally decided he was bluffing. I threw in one more. He was a bad poker player. Whenever I played house, the mother doll always had a lot to do. I never knew what to do with the daddy doll, so I had him say, I'm going off to work now. <laughs> and then I threw him under the bed. <laughs> and every day I can relate. When I was nine years old, my father didn't get up one morning and he didn't go to work. He went to the hospital and he died the next day. There was a lot of people in the house who brought all kinds of good food and cakes. We never had so much company before. I went to my room and felt under the bed for the father doll. When I find him, I dusted him off, I put him on my bed. You know, he never did anything. I didn't know his leaving would hurt so much. It still does today. How, men, how will you be remembered? I would hope I'm not remembered as someone who my kids never knew what I believed and never knew what I did. It's one thing to be missed. It's another thing to be remembered. I would hope that I would be remembered as a man who strongly, strongly relied upon God and not myself. As a man who knelt before the throne of cross and recognized my sins before God and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and to forgive me. As a man who was in love with the Lord. 
I would hope that my kids and those around me would remember me as a person who loved the Word of God and was obedient in my life when I was convicted of things that were wrong. I would hope that I would be remembered as a father who was responsible toward my family, who provided not only for their physical needs, but their emotional and their spiritual needs as well. I want to be remembered not only by God as a good dad, but also as my kids. And I would hope that you want to be remembered the same. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and we're grateful for your word. We thank you that you determine what is good, you determine what is right, you determine what makes a good dad. God, I just pray that each one of us as men, that first and foremost, that we'd have a right relationship with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would be men that are not relying on our own strength and our own wisdom, but on the wisdom of God. That we would be men who would show a passion and a love for the Lord and for his word, God, and that we would live our lives accordingly as we impress that word on our heart. God, may we never become like the culture around us that shrinks from responsibility. God, may we be men who stand up and are accounted for, men who meet the needs of our family, our wives, our children, men who, when we're frustrated, will turn to you for strength and support, men, as we see other men who are about to leave their wife or their kids to desert their responsibilities, to warn them of the deception of all of it and the danger that's to follow. God, help us to be men who are counted for. You tell us that you're searching to and from for a man who has a heart like yours. God, may we be those men. And we just thank you and praise you for the results. In Christ's name, amen.